This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest quarantine episode of the Cabal cast. We have a pretty interesting topic for you. So it's something that when we first set out to do this podcast and create this, we said we would never touch. Uh, it's taboo, it's a dumb subject because everyone disagrees, they get animated and hate everything. Mm -hmm. So we were digging around and obviously there's been a lot of hubbub about it lately. Saffron Olive tweeted about Wheel of Fortune. Meanwhile, Gilded Drake is rising, nobody says anything. LED's back up again, nobody says anything. Earthcraft is 60 plus right now. So we, we wanted to take a look at the reserve list, but we wanted to do it in a unique way. Yeah. Rather than tell you why it's good or bad or whatever, uh, you know, we were active in the community back then. We remember when it happened. Uh, you know, we still talk to people that had stores back then. So we wanted to kind of present a historical account of the reserve list, devoid of emotion, mm -hmm. devoid of what our opinions are. Just try to present facts as we recall them, facts as the people around them around them recall them and what it was like to try to get to a better core understanding of what the reserve list is mm -hmm. uh why wizards of the coast instituted it and what's happened since how it's changed how it's evolved and how it's come to shape the game and the financial aspects of that game as we know it now yeah. so you know to get it started one of the big things is collectibles in today's market in the world of eBay, a million different conventions, uh, plenty of Facebook groups for mm -hmm. cycling them. Collectibles in the 90s were a lot different. Yes. A lot. Um, I, for one, I don't know about you, my wonderful co-host. Sports cards were my thing. In the 90s, sports cards were huge. Uh, that was when, through... Legitimately, insider market manipulation, the Honus Wagner T206 hit a quarter million dollars and then hit a million dollars. Trading cards exploded. They were everywhere. Tops had five sets a year. Upper Deck had 12. Yep. Bowman had three. Everyone wanted all the sports cards they could get. And what were you collecting at the time, just out of curiosity? Uh, so I actually have on my deck a magic uh, desk a magic deck box full of baseball cards that i will be getting graded for my father that i've taken out to display on camera that has in it if i can find it what signifies the end of collectability in the sports ah. card era the ken griffey jr rookie cards yep Boom. oh man beautiful the one that came in every factory deck uh Sports cards is interesting, and what I'm trying to trying to say is they made a, like every producer made their own like year box, so you could buy yeah. all the cards in the '94 set in set. one box. And uh, it's worth noting, uh, you you now we have to go through Moto for this. We have to win a contest. You could go to Target. Or Walmart, or mm -hmm. in some cases, your local baseball card shop. Yep. And like Reptar said, you could just buy the set. My dad has uh, my birth year and my sister's birth year left. 
yeah. he collected rookie cards, and so I got in on that. I have a handful. Some of mine are in there. Uh, Mattingly was and is my favorite baseball player, so nice. all his rookie stuff. Um, and the other thing I was collecting in the 90s uh, that wasn't Magic or Pokemon that I, I actually will touch on later was the first three waves maybe four of the star wars power of the force releases in the 90s yeah so technically power of the force too because the first one was in the 70s yeah so so that was me touching on that you know star wars action figures and 70s era gi joe's started exploding because Mm -hmm. you had people that grew up in the 70s all of a sudden it's the 90s they're in their 20s and 30s and they have disposable income comics also exploded Now, the thing to note about all three of these collectibles is, you know, baseball cards are based in reality. Uh, Star Wars, G.I. Joe, science fiction, hard fiction. Comics kind of straddled the line, but they were mostly sci-fantasy. Yeah, with allegory into the real world a la X-Men. Yeah, and it's interesting that at that time, you could have a specialty store that did one of these three things and it was fully self-sustaining based on in-store business. Yes. So the collectability of that product, their ability to sell that product on the collectible run was important. Mm-hmm. And it kind of ties into some cultural stuff that was going on at the time. So in the 80s in America, we had the satanic panic. There were, you know, satanic cults everywhere. People were dying. D&D actually started to suffer during this time, and so did fantasy at large. Yeah, D&D took a huge lull. And, you know, there were some deaths that people assumed were related to D&D in London and elsewhere. And D&D, which had been hugely popular in the 70s and the early 80s, took a big hit. Mm Mm-hmm. There was no fantasy to be had anywhere. The only thing you had was Final Fantasy, and that wasn't really traditional fantasy. You know, Lord of the Rings was basically it. Other than that, if you wanted to collect anything, mm-hmm. it was sci-fi, sci-fantasy, or real life. Yep, that's where the market was. Uh, all the continued action figures and cartoon properties uh, from yep. the 80s that people remember into the 90s. Um, all sci-fi. Ninja Turtle figures, yep, of uh, course. There is a magic store about here where the owner collects not, maybe it is Dino Riders. Dino Riders was great. But he has every single Dino (laughs) Riders on a shelf that goes around the entire store. Every single figure. that is amazing. Every single vehicle from Dino Riders. Yep. That's beautiful. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's kind of how collectibles were at the time. It, It was throw some shit at the wall and it'll stick maybe yeah who knows uh, it, collectibles were exploding at this time and it's similar to you know make a modern tie into it a couple of years ago when the bitcoin boom happened you had all these 20 and 30 somethings with all of this disposable income that all of a sudden decide i want to invest in the thing i liked when i was a kid mm-hmm. and then we had the old school boom so it's it's kind of like a version of the old school boom that happened to other industries so During all of this, you know, this uproar over sports cards, Star Wars, comics, fantasy kind of being at a low point, uh, Richard Garfield comes out, meets up with a bunch of his friends in a garage, and they start brainstorming and brewing this game 
Magic the Gathering. And there's a couple of articles that we'll have in the description mm-hmm. that are great about the early days and what it was like for them. Yep. And it's interesting because I remember at the time, the first place I opened a pack of Magic the Gathering was at Hobbytown, USA, where I was going to buy World War II models. Okay. Where, where was your first one? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I'm trying to think. I can't. I cannot remember the name of the store, but it was a sports card store in my town where I bought yep. my baseball cards that also sold uh, Magic the Gathering. And yep. it wasn't like – it was something generic like Sports Cards USA. Yeah. Like, that was I, it. There was also one million baseball cards and vintage comics and games. And – uh, the interesting thing about those places that we just mentioned, it was sports cards, it was comics, mm-hmm. and Hobbytown at the time was just models. Okay, it, yeah. It was this, this, the idea of a card game that was collectible just didn't exist. And I know everyone knows Magic was first to market, blah, 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 whatever you want to say. It's hard to understand how revelatory that was without having been there it's, you know, it, it is very hard to think about when you go back and you read about the history of magic uh, dr richard garfield used a tagline that a lot of people have been using recently which is magic was designed to be played while waiting online there are yep. a number of games that are designed currently to be very similar yeah and knowing that initial design and then if you want to read about what they were doing in the like the pre-alpha like play test phases you can do that and see how much the game just changed and it's just so mind-boggling to think about what this game was originally supposed to be what it became and now how to know it and it's it's interesting because he came out with this thing that he titled a collectible card game and mm-hmm. we'd had trading card games before, but it's important that he used the word collectible. And the reason that is because back then, collectibles, like we mentioned, sports cards, comics, Star Wars, the unique thing about those was you had one year to get those. One run, and that was it. Ken Griffey Jr. rookie. There's one year you can get that from. You can't get it from a 95 or a 99, there's one year. So collectibles at that point, by their definition to the public, and it's, at the time, that was all we had. We didn't have an internet at that point. We didn't have mass communication. Our prices came from Scry Magazine that just called up a bunch of stores and said, how much are you selling this for? And that's where the information came from. So he used the word collectible. So up until that point, collectibles were one and done. You had your first wave of Power of the Force. Yep. Once once that was gone, uh, you may find it, but that's because they dug it out of a warehouse somewhere. Or what they'll wind up doing, this they did it with comics, was a secondary release wave where there was an identifying mark that it was not the first, making it less collectible than the initial run. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would either change the text on the number or they would change the color on the X-Men. I distinctly remember in the 90s, you'd have the yellow X-Men, and then later, the same issue would have white text for X-Men. Yep. 
Uh, on action figures with the backs, you, um, like for Ninja Turtles for 1988, there are 10 backs. For the original yeah. Power of the Force, despite the fact that there are nine figures in the first wave, the original ones only have eight figures and two vehicles, I believe. And yeah. these are the kind of iterations you saw, so you knew at a glance, this is different. Yeah. And it, you know, the, the reason that's important, again, is because Magic chose to use this word. Richard Garfield, Wizards of the Coast, used the word collectible. And at the time, the distribution was drastically different than it is now. Uh, Wizards of the Coast was like the Wild West. You, you know, someone from St. Louis got on the first Pro Tour literally because he called the day before yep. and said, hey, can I be on the Pro Tour? And they were like, sure. Yep. And that's similar to how product was distributed then. You had some distributors, uh, you know, be like large retailers like Gathering Ground or New Ground, uh, you know, or Neutral Ground, Neutral, sorry. Yep. And you would see their advertisements in like Scry and Inquest. And if you were a store, you could call them to try to get a deal if you couldn't get it from Wizards of the Coast. So compounded with that, Tops and Upper Deck never really released their print runs. But you knew one year and done. Yes. So Magic came out and Alpha printed in 93. It premiered at Gen Con. A ton of it was thrown out. Yep. Rest in peace. All those lotuses. Uh, and they didn't really have a release schedule. So imagine, if you will... You are a store. You're a baseball card store, a comic store, whatever. You hear about this new game that's insanely popular at Gen Con, or maybe it's not. It really kind of bombed. But uh, you hear about this game, and people start asking about it. And you call, and you say, I need this. Great. They send some to you. You don't know when there's more coming. Okay, so I have what I have, and I have to sell it. Yep. That kind of, that adds to the collectability. That adds to how limited it is. Because you never you know, know if they, it's coming out or coming or any more is coming back, yeah. And the print runs there were also not disclosed. Now, we do have some links. Crystal Keep did a good job of keeping track of some print runs, how many of each rare we had, stuff like that, which we'll have links up for that as well. Yep. Um, so when Alpha did incredibly well in 93... They released Beta. And the important thing about Beta compared to Alpha, aside from Print Run, is like Tar mentioned. Defining characteristics. So what is the defining characteristic? I know you know. Uh, well, aside from the corner change, uh, yeah. it is a complete set. Yep. And uh, along with the corner changes, which so they're less round, more like unlimited, unlimited revised and the, the rest of that, you also have a lot of the centering issues fixed yeah so if you were to look at uh artifacts that cost zero the centering on that zero is a little bit different and they continue to iterate on that ce is like like perfect square yeah and that's that's your defining characteristics and then we have unlimited well the biggest difference between beta and unlimited is white borders white border. same set white borders then we have revised so revised was interesting because there was a lot more of it. Yeah. And 
Oh, like I said it was fixed? Uh, yeah. Or, uh, yeah, so how, how would oh. you say it was fixed? Uh, a number of ways. So the, the, the game had actually been balanced. Alpha, Beta, Unlimited were still technically this kind of pre-release phase. That's, yeah. you know, you want to call them limited edition because for a collectible reason, sure. But think about Alpha and Beta more as getting to version one of the game. Revise is fixed. Uh, there is different art for Plateau. It has the second plate used. Yeah, exactly. The first uh, Plateau plate was destroyed or lost, one or the other. Um, yeah. And the color saturation is much different between Revised and Unlimited. The text in the text box of the cards is also less bold. They align yeah. it more to the left and to the top. And some of the awkward print issues, like Birds of Paradise, which I believe the Unlimited one has a slash after the word flying, mm -hmm. uh, have been removed. And when I say fixed, the game had also been kind of treated for a version 1 release, so the mock, all the power had been removed. Berserk was no longer a card in the, in the yeah. game. Things like that. And a gigantic print run by comparison, because now this is a game that people saw and wanted to play. The art was evocative, despite the yeah. fact that we were still in that kind of satanic panic. And it just hooked the kind of crowd they wanted it to. The D&D &D crowd are the people who are interested in playing a role-playing game. Yeah. Um, so... We ha we'll have the links up. The important thing to notice here, as far as print runs, because we talk about a huge print run for Revised. So Alpha had 2.6 million cards printed. Beta had about 7.8. Unlimited had 40 million, which was a lot. Yeah, and this is total card population. This is not, yes. num like, rares. Yeah, this this includes all your rares, all your, all your uncommons, commons, basics, which at the time were U1, U2, U3, yada, yada. And then we hit revised. 600 million was the print run on revised. Yep. So 40 to 600 million cards total. So imagine, if you will, you are a store. And you've been selling this game. And all of a sudden, revised hits. And this is about the time the game explodes. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Suddenly, there are all these eyes on this game. There's all these people that are like, man, I cannot wait to play this game. Mm -hmm. So you're okay at that point because your print run on your collectible cards is much smaller. Up until that point, the largest print run we'd had was 62 million cards for the dark. So, you know, you've got all of these people coming in. You have plenty of products. People are buying it. It's selling. Black Lotus is like a hundred to two hundred bucks at this point, which is insane to think about now. It's absurd. Yes. But this happens, and all of a sudden, great! I have these old cards that people want now, but they can't get them because they're collectible. Because mm -hmm. they're not coming back. So you may have had Black Lotus for 100 or 200 but you also had cards like Mishra's Workshop for 75 to 100 And the thing was back then, similar to like a booth now, it was kind of a status symbol if you were a shop that had one of those in your case. Mm. If you had a Black Lotus or a Mox or something, people were more likely to come to your store. 
because the word of mouth was way more important then than it is now. Yeah, you have the rarity, thus you have the product. And, you know, as, as things evolve through the years, uh, we get 4th edition. And people are admittedly a little upset about 4th edition. Uh, because we have cards reprinted like Mishra's Factory. Which, at the time, it was important to note, there was a difference there. There was no set symbol. So you could tell just by a glance... Mm-hmm. Well, there's no set symbol. It's obviously a different version. Now, also playing into the collectability of this game was the utility of the cards, how playable they were, which is unique. Mm-hmm. Poker cards, doesn't matter. You play them. Yep. Baseball cards, you can't play them. So it's strictly collectible. And you can even find, looking at like early playtesting documentation, where only a couple of some cards were made because deliberately they wanted those cards to be scarce. Yes. So that they could be powerful effects that not everyone had access to because and, back then flavor was king. And also and, uh, a way to balance the game. Yeah. If not everybody can play at this four of every card or four of the same cards, things would kind of naturally balance themselves out with this without this worldwide homogenous metagame that we kind of get now where now every card has to be balanced against everything else because everybody has access to everything yeah not the case see no not not the case then at all you had you know maybe a couple ancestral recalls compared to you know i think force of will at the time was one of the rarest test print cards i you know in in my search for mountain goats i uh, got a playtest stone rain on a mountain goat <laughs> all right that's uh, interesting yeah, and uh, you know this this is how playtest cards look now. Back then, it was just a handwritten piece of paper printed on that he would hand out. Yep. So the utility and playability of these cards was important. So when fourth edition hit, some stores started to be like, "Okay, but hang on. You know this this card's worth a lot of money, or it was, and now I have a bunch of copies out, and this feels not as good." So, all of this comes to a head, because 4th edition happens, and then we get Chronicles. Chronicles. So, to give you an idea, from Revised to 4th, there's an increase of 100 million cards in the overall print run population. The number of rares goes from 289,000 per, in Revised, and this number is uh, fuzzy. This is not a number that Crystal Keep was able to lock in compared to 4th editions, which they were able to lock in at 353,500 per. So it's an increase, but it's not the huge increase we saw from Unlimited to Revised. But again, that's, Revised is really the set that the game starts to be playable. Prior yeah. to that, it was in this kind of nascent state. Things hadn't really been figured out. And then Chronicles hits. And we still have, at this point, U1, U2, U3, etc., etc. And this is where the Crystal Keep table becomes very important. So looking at Antiquities U1s, 31,000 total. Yep. Total. Looking at Chronicles U1s, 516,500. Over 10 times as many. 
So going back to the baseball analogy, let's say... Oh, wait, let me get it. Let me get it. I have it. Yeah. Okay. I have the card that destroyed baseball. I'll bring it up again. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> this, so. is, this is the Chronicles of baseball cards. This company can no longer make baseball cards because of this. There's a great Netflix documentary. It it does tie into magic and collectibles a little bit. It's called Jack of All Trades. If you want to know more about this and collectibles, it's, it's very much an aside from the conversation. But this yeah. card did to baseball cards what Chronicles did to Magic the Gathering in regards to collectability. Yep. It's very important for that specific reason because... You have divergent strategies here. So, basically, when this happened, all of these stores were like, what are you doing? I, I had these cards. They were collectible. That's why people bought them. Now you're telling me they can just be reprinted at any time. I'm pulling my business. Yep. I can't support this. Players stopped buying cards from me, so I'm going to stop buying cards from you. Because the word collectible was used. Because people assumed that meant it could only be printed so much. Mm -hmm. And that's when everything kind of started to fall apart. So all of a sudden, Wizards of the Coast, which at this point was still very hand-to-mouth, had its lifeline threatened. Yes. People were saying, we're not giving you money. We're pulling our support. You're not going to sell any more of your product. So Wizards panicked. And we're stopping there. Listen next week for the next episode. But! <laughs> they panicked. Uh, though, I do want to point out, they panicked and they contacted collectors, uh, collectors, uh, sorry, stores and players yes. to come together yep. to have a discussion. Yeah. And I give a lot of credit here because I wish that when things went wrong, more people did this. They actually went to the people that mattered. And they said, look, I, what do we do? How do we fix this for you? What do we What do? We do? You want this to be collectible. Mm -hmm. Come up with a solution. Work with us. And that was kind of where it all took off. And that is where we will leave you hanging for next week. Yes. All right. So... Uh, this is episode one of three, and uh, every week we'll do picks on like some of our holiday ones where we just slam jam it all. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go first because I have all my stuff up. So uh, my pick for the week is Finale of Revelation yep. from War of the Spark. It comes in a set version and a promo version and a pre-release version right now. And this was something I was surprised to see on the Card Kingdom buy list for several days in a row. And they're buying every version of this card at seemingly an unending quantity because it never changes. They're buying like 30 non-foils of this card with an arbitrage opportunity from TCG Player immediately. They could literally be buying this card off TCG Player and just sell it. Put it on, restocking their site. The... Yeah. The best that I can tell, because I, I spent almost a week doing this, 
is this is coming from uh, EDH Demand based on uh, Zaxara, the new Sultai commander that makes a gigantic mm -hmm. Hydra. Um, I've got the list of I've got Rack right up here, and you can see it is the number one commander. This deck isn't even out yet, and uh, Zaxara is the number one general for this card. It also goes in a lot of like I want to do big dumb things with my base blue or mono blue deck and when yeah. i cast this spell i'm going to win this turn or the next deal with me it's a unique effect i assume when you cast this you're going to cast it for 10 or more and then it mixes the card time spiral uh with uh stroke of genius so you're going to draw 10 plus cards on tap five lands and shuffle your graveyard back into your library exiling finale revolution so this is this is kind sure. of what made this interesting to me it's it doesn't feel like a first-rate card to me. Uh, sorry, no, it, it combines Brain Geyser, not Stroke of Genius. There's oh, a yeah. big difference yeah. there. Uh, CMC, it's the same as Brain Geyser. It, uh, the important part, and this is why it's just interesting to me, is it's not an instant and it doesn't target. You can Stroke of Genius somebody out of the game. I think you can Brain Geyser somebody out of the game as well if you want to. You can't with yeah. Finale, and it's a, it's a one-use thing. But you can Rift Sweeper it back into play, or you can pull from Eternity it back into play. So it's in this weird space where it doesn't feel like it's a Tier 1 option. It feels like it's a Tier 3. So to me, this feels bad, but I understand why people would want to play this. It also did crop up in uh, early April versions of both Lotus Breach and Pioneer and Azorius Control prior to Companions. And if yeah. uh, you zoom in real fine on the stocks graph, you can actually see like where that happens in early uh, early mid-March, something like that. You can see a very hard uptick in average and market, and it hasn't really come back. You just see it going, 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 going. And uh, I misspoke. It's not in promo packs. It's set and pre-release only. Yeah. So it, this is a card that if people are looking for for the new EDH General, it's not even out yet. You can't get it for another two weeks. Logic dictates that demand is going to increase once people can actually get their decks, build it, and more decks go up. More people are going to see this. We'll hit a little bit of a feedback loop, and you'll probably be able to get out of this card at about $5 to another player. I would expect a solid 3 to 4 to buy a list. And then you've got to worry about September rotate. Uh, no, it's not rotating to September, right? Uh, I think it is. Uh... We... we... I think it's next year. What's in the standard? I'll hit it right there. Q4 2020 rotates out. Okay, yeah, so you have okay, until yeah, September sure. to, to to get rid of this, then it tanks, and then it'll come back over time. Uh, it, like I said, it's, it's kind of surprising that this is really only an EDH card compared to a constructed card, and that it gets played kind of alongside Blue Sun Zen, the Stroke of Genius, Brain Geysery style cards, yeah. But it does a number of things when you cast it for what you need to. Um, it, a good parallel for this card might be Blue Sun Zenith. That card was nothing when it was standard. It blew up a little bit when Modern first came around because things were real weird back then. Dropped yeah. to nothing, and then over the last couple of years has, has come back pretty pretty strong for a, uh, a regular set rare. And I would expect this to follow a similar trajectory where it's going to go up, it'll dip at rotation, and then it'll just come back because of EDH demand. Yeah. So it's not the worst one, quote-unquote. I think the white one is technically the worst one, but if you had the ability to trade this off of people, they should be 
pretty pretty amenable to yeah. that. So, uh, all in all, I like it as a pick. I just don't like it as a card to to play. So that, that's that's why I feel bad about it because I look at this and I'm just to me it's like mm, I could play better cards, but yeah, I'm more spiky than the average, I guess. So we don't have a big effect on the market. Generally speaking, yeah, I was hoping this would have been something tucked away in like CEDH, or I might have, or I might have found this in some weird off the wall list, but it just never happened. And like MTG no. decks kind of lied to me. They're like, oh, it's an Azorius control deck, and I had to literally go back over a month to find it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So that means it's not. Yeah, exactly. Well, well we we had companions. Yeah. And you can just cycle stuff with Luris, or you play 80 cards with Urion, and it just took over that kind of spot. It just essentially got phased out after it phased in. Yeah. So. Uh, speaking of us not having a big impact on the market, my pick. Yes. So, kind of interesting. I'm looking at a bit more of a long-term hold here, which I know is kind of my M.O., Specifically, I'm looking at the foil talismans from Modern Horizons. So, uh, the one that I cited specifically is Talisman of Is It, yep. the foils. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because one, distros are out of Horizons now; doesn't exist. Uh, they've got some left, but it's at above what it, it's a it's at above wholesale. It's like 170 to 180 now, depending on what you're looking at as far as your account goes. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the supply for the foil over the last two weeks of Talisman of Visit, again as the example, has gone from over 30 to down to 13. Jeez. So there's a few factors that I think play into this. One, the biggest format that is actually thriving thanks to the Play EDH Discord during quarantine is literally Paper EDH. People are playing over webcam. Mm -hmm. There's also... It feels like we're in a second boom of CEDH. So, Wheel of Fortune, Gilded Drake, LED, a little bit more related to Luris, sure. Earthcraft. These I things think are all. This. Yeah, Earthcraft is definitely CEDH. These things are spiking because CEDH is getting more playability. And when you have CEDH, you want the most efficiency possible. So, the talismans are some of your best universal color fixing that aren't Moxon. So they're sitting at about six, seven bucks. That's pretty decent. And then when you look at a card like Talisman of Dominance, the old school uh, black blue one, foils are sitting at about 25 bucks. That feels like the right price for this. So I fully anticipate within the next six months to a year, you'll start to see these Modern Horizons talismans, the foils especially, mm -hmm. start to shoot up as supply dries up and people realize, I need this for EDH. And what do EDH players love doing? Yeah. Foil. They love pimp. So Talisman of Visit, for example, is the most expensive one right now at like 6 to $7. I fully expect that to double over the next six months to a year. So if you can pick them up now, do it. Five bucks or less, you can trade it. You, if you can trade for it straight across even, I don't think you lose money. And then you look at another color combination, Talisman of Simic. Foils are like two bucks. You can't lose. No. Four with shipping, sure. But 
I think when you have stuff like this, and we talk about how EDH cards are waiting less and less time to start going up, this seems to be lagging behind. You know, seven to eight dollars, you know, six, seven, eight, that seems like way too affordable for something like this. So I'm getting in now. Uh, I'm at about 10 of each. Okay. And I have every intention of getting up to about 15 of them. And I'm not going to dump until I can dump for that number. Okay. Once I hit fifteen ten to $15, great. I'm out. I think that's fine. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day because uh, you gave me the pick, and I just had a shower thought of the week, over the weekend. I was like, you know what? You know, we, when Mirrodin first came out, we didn't have a format to play these in that wasn't standard. These were just the talisman were bad everywhere. Yeah. And then over time, EDH becomes a format that picks up. The talisman actually begin to see play. Some of them spike for different reasons. Um, you have the red-green ones spike because of the red-green Eldrazi deck in Modern because talismans make col uh, colorless natively. So it effectively yeah. gives you, quote-unquote, all three colors. Similarly for uh, Talisman of Unity, it does that same thing. But it doesn't. it didn't spike. But... It is the only one that lags behind in price. Every other talisman from Mirrodin has a, about a $4 base price tag because of EDH. Uh, Dominance and, oh man, I just looked this up, the blue-white one, are like 6 or yeah. $7 each for non-foil. So, so, sorry, go ahead. Uh, coming in even at a dollar, that's still a sleeper price for the non-foil. Yeah. Like, like, and is it... We didn't get that talisman for years. Mirrodin was 2003. We got Modern Horizons in 2019. That's 16 years we didn't have the Izzet talisman. We didn't have the Simic yeah. talisman for just as long. You know, people are going to pick these things up, and now that supply is demand, we're going to see them tick up. We're going to see things like Generous Gift tick up. These utili utility cards that everybody needs are going to just go up. This serves as a good reminder that... Modern Horizons, now that we know it is drying up, you know, prices stagnant or increasing slowly for Paxion Distro, whatever they have left, everything is just going to start going up now. And I think this is a, a very easy place to get in and make some money in time. Yeah. And, you know, I know I've been very high on Modern Horizons. I've picked multiple cards from the set because... Excuse me, I thought they were just yeah. way too affordable. Uh, but this is as sure a thing as I think you can possibly get. Even over, and I'll say it, Unbound Flourishing. Yeah, I think the margin on this is going to be much larger than Unbound Flourishing is, and uh, possibly in a shorter time span. Yeah. Uh, like, looking at what I did and noticing that, base, that Finale Revelation goes in uh, with that Hydra General, that does become the opportunity that people move very quickly into uh, more focused Hydra Tribal decks, so you'll see things like Krasis go up and Sultai uh, Hydras jump. You'll uh, you'll lose Progenitus and the white and red uh, Hydras yeah. for something a little more uh, tuned. So Unbound, Unbound Flourishing might get a tick there, but I think Talisman of Creativity, with the numbers that I put up before from the wreck and the amount of decks it's already slotted into, has the opportunity to increase... Uh, faster and at a much larger percentage than yeah. Unbound Flourishing does. So. That's it. Yep. I, I 
I like the pick. Um, I'm kind of befuddled that it did take us this long to get to something that is like this core to the format, you know? Right, yeah. I don't know why I didn't do it sooner, but it, here we are. <laughs> like I said, original Mirren, Mirren and Talismans, sleeper cards that just slipped on by. Same thing. I yeah. forgot these were cards until you told me about them. Just, I, I like. I don't even have mine for EDH. Yeah. Like, so keep that in mind. We're dumb, but uh, that's going to be it for today. Next week we will continue on with uh, our series about the uh, reserve list, and you can find us on Twitter and Patreon at MTG Cabalcast. You can find me on Twitter at Halt I Am Reptar. We can find you at Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys. Catch you later.